So, hey everyone, welcome back to the third of our Audience of One series here. Um, and so far we've been blown away with everybody tuning in every Sunday night for the last few weeks. Uh, tonight we're up in the game, we're bringing in the heavy hitters, we're bringing in some unbelievable guys who have got some incredible stories to share about living for an audience of one in their everyday life. Um, first of all, I want to introduce you to one, one, a couple of my friends. Um, first up, I've got a, a good buddy on tonight, Philip, or we're going to call him Mitch. Um, he's got a younger brother called Mitch, he's tried to trademark that name. But for tonight, we're going to steal it off him, because his name's Mitchell too. Uh, but uh, Philip heads up sports chaplaincy here in Northern Ireland. Uh, he's played football before in the past for a few good teams. He's travelled the world because he loves football and he does some amazing things. Uh, so Philip, we want to welcome you here tonight. Come on in and tell us, say hi to the guys and give us a wee bit of info about you. Uh, well, good evening everyone. I'm delighted to have been invited on to uh, uh, your uh, little chat show tonight. And uh, I'm, I know I'm in wonderful company with Lynn Boy. So, um, I, I mean, my... Uh, my background is, is obviously, as Spud has said, I was in a bit of football. I've had the privilege of playing for uh, some uh, some of the top clubs in, uh, in Northern Ireland and played with a lot of good players and managers. And, um, and, and again, I've had the privilege of working in the sports sporting goods industry for a long time. I was with Umbro for 15 years. And, and then uh, in recent years, I've worked across uh, a number of different um, streams in sport. Uh, I worked with... Um, an organization in America where we, we looked after international football projects. Um, so I've had the privilege of looking after them in, in the southern part of Europe. And then uh, in the last few years, uh, again, alongside my younger brother, Keith, we then took on the, the role of coordinating sports chaplaincy in Northern Ireland, which is uh, grown to be uh, increasingly more and more exciting. Um, and, uh, and then I did some work for the Irish CFA as well. So again, I've just been blessed to be involved in sport. I'm, I'm married, I've got three boys who all, uh, all follow Jesus and all, uh, all uh, love sport as well. So that's me. Amazing, Ned. Delighted to have you here. Um, and then we want to get our, our special guest on tonight. We want to welcome Linvoy. Uh, Linvoy Primus MBE to give him his full title. Um, <laughs> We're delighted to have you then, boy. I know you and I go way back. Uh, how are you, brother? How's things with you? Say hi to everyone. Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, lovely to be on with you, Spud. Um, yeah, uh, what can I say? So, played football for a little while. Uh, well, from most of my uh, teenage and uh, through the 20s into my early 30s. Um, played in all four divisions in, um, in the UK. Uh, retired in 2010, um, started to do some charity work. I started a charity in 2003, but continued to do that after I retired. And then in 2013, I started to work for an organisation called Christians in Sport. And uh, my role is to support footballers uh, up and down the country on their journey of, of faith. And uh, I, I was, I, I said that recently, but I was also... Um, a trustee to sports chaplaincy, so uh, to fill um, some of the decisions we made a couple of years ago, you're probably feeling the effects of now. So, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> positive. Hello, all in a good way. <laughs> how's, how's everything been for you, guys, both with lockdown and everything going on in the world at the moment? How's things for you being Lindboy? Yeah, um, interesting to be fair because. I've got my wife and uh, my youngest son uh, at home um, 
at home. So, you know, the first, I think the first few weeks were a little bit, oh, it's like holiday mode. Um, I was still able to continue working and do what I needed to do because I could do it over uh, Zoom calls or FaceTime and things like that. But the intensity really ramped up. So, um, so that was a bit of a struggle at first. But, um, but I think after the, the first few weeks of that holiday feel sort of going, I think there was a there was a little period where there was it was a bit flat because it was you know you you were confined even though the weather was lovely you were confined to uh, a certain space most of the time. So there was a little flat period. But then once we adapted, you know, I think everybody cleared their garages done DIY you know I definitely didn't do any DIY because my piece has a demolition you know not do it yourself mine's definitely dem demolition so um so we've been okay my daughter's still in America uh, she wasn't able to come back uh, but she just graduated um she, all her work went online and my oldest son he's a tree surgeon so it didn't really affect him work-wise he was able to continue working so yeah, it's been okay. It's been okay. There's, you know, there's a couple of bumps, but if there's not, uh, you know, if everyone hasn't had those little bumps, I'd be surprised. So yeah, so overall though, quite positive. Yeah, I've seen, um, I seen a guy put out on Twitter from the Oxford English Dictionary. He said, uh, we've never seen such unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> It's unprecedented. You know what it sounds like? You're going to uh, take the president down, unprecedented, you know? That's what it sounds like. It? <laughs> well, well what, what about for you and everything you're involved with? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Spud, we're, we're, I mean, the, the reality is for most people, I think unless you've been directly involved with the virus and you've had, you know, a, a, a person you've, your family who's, who's went through it or you've lost someone so there's obviously been the bereavement piece for people um, and, and obviously then not being able to say goodbye to people of course we shouldn't forget that those those are all like tragic circumstances that affected so many people um, I mean personally for me I mean it's I mean it's been an inconvenience and you know in truth no more than that because you know where, where you, you stop doing some of the things you were doing you take up the silver linings of spending more time with your family and I'm uh, blessed with some good weather. Um, but on the chat, on the sports chaplaincy side, we've we we wanted to, we realised there was a, a crisis within sport. Uh, that sport had stopped, and it stopped indefinitely. Um, and uh, um, the the sporting community were a little bit of a loss. And people at the top end of organisations and national governing bodies were. Um, we're in unprecedented, use that word again, uh, uh, um, territory. So we, we've, uh, you know, like, like everyone else, we've, we've used the technical uh, resources at hand. We've connected in with all of our chaplains. Our chaplains are doing that similarly with their clubs. And we're making our services available to people throughout all this time. Um, we're cheering on the, the sporting community who have been, you know, I think always take a pretty good lead in times like this. Um, uh, in terms of wanting to help, you know, they were, they wanted to see what they could do from a charitable point of view to help the NHS and key workers. So all of those things have been going on and we're, uh, you know, we've, we've been talking to people at the top of organizations and asking them, what can we be praying for? How can we be of practical help? What, what do we think the new norm might look like going forward? Um, so we've been at the forefront of those conversations and, and, and in many cases, you know, we found that our, our, our chaplains are, 
of even greater need than they are in the in the you know pre COVID nineteen. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the things we first all missed was probably sports, and I it seems to be sports is the one key thing that is kind of being turned back on again or starting back up again that everyone's turning to for that little bit of, you know, normality and hope that things can change. Uh, how have you found that change with what you're doing, Philip, as things start to kick back up again and conversations begin to take place? Yeah, I think what we're, we're realizing is that um, the environment that people are going to go into, I mean, sport will start again and, and the com competitive nature uh, of sport uh, uh, will start again um, and the socializing will start again but it may well be a different environment that that happens in um, you know players turning up the training it may be they're turning up the training and getting out of the car going on the training field you know a, a lot of social socially distancing training and then and then getting back in their car and, and disappearing and then match day is clearly going to look different for a while as well um, so we're we're trying to understand what that environment is going to look like but so some of it is, is still an unknown. There's still some uncertainty yeah. right now. But again, by at least talking to the key stakeholders, then you know our chaplains are at least well prepared for that and uh, and are ready to step in to be you know just to be available. I mean, and again, what we don't know there, spot is is in every environment. You know, they'll clearly want to limit the amount of people who are around the training environment. Who will want to limit people around the environment and that's totally fine we're, we're you know we, we we do not want to be getting in the way but at the same time we want to make sure that we uh, you know we're, we're connect still connected in whether that maybe is initially electronically and, and then hopefully at some point then in terms of face-to-face -face, so that we can just be around our players and our staff uh, and all the administrative people the volunteers and all the wonderful people who make up sporting clubs um, because we don't know all their little journeys they've been on through COVID-19 some will have had bereavement loss some will have had some unemployment is going to be an issue sport you know we can't get away from that and it's going to, it's going to be, be an issue in sport and uh, so we, we don't know maybe all the little journeys have been on so just being around and being able to have a, a safe place for people to talk and, and help them um, through the next phase and what's going on in their lives I think is really important. Yeah absolutely and Linvoy before we get to some of your your own personal story um, what what was your thoughts on you know when when the whole pandemic hit and you know, the world was shaking. It seems to be the media and politicians in, uh, included seem to go after some of the guys, the top players, the top yeah. sports players, all because of their income and, and the fear of the unknown of what was about to happen. And then it's now almost come full circle in this past week where we're seeing the incredible Marcus Rashford just yeah. in 24 hours almost completely change the whole government policy and free school meetings for kids throughout the whole of the summer, you know. Uh, what was your, having been in the Premier League and played at the top level, what was your thinking and thoughts on some of that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, early on, I, when, when before the lockdown and everything like that, I was probably a little bit blasé in regards to what it looked like and what it could be because, you know, it was, it was still in France, it hadn't quite crossed to England and, and, um, and then, you know, in my head I was thinking, well, if this wasn't, if there was no label to it, you know, if you get a cough, sneeze or cold, it would be seasonal and, you know, who is expected. But, you know, once lockdown came and I think the graphic that really spoke to me was when um, it showed that one person 
could infect three and then three could infect and that really hit home to me um and then i was in uh probably three weeks after the lockdown my uncle uh got taken into hospital um with corona and his whole household had it as well just symptoms and stuff like that and and an ex-pro that i know is you know very healthy looks after himself very well he had it as well um both of them recovered but i remember speaking to my uncle a week after he'd been out of hospital he'd been in hospital maybe three weeks so it was a month um of him having it and then a week out and i spoke to him done a video call with him and he was speaking away and I was looking at him and he said, Lynn, I feel so much better than I did last week. And I thought, my days, if you look, if you think you look good now, you must have looked really bad last, you know, the last few weeks. Um, but, you know, to, to the two people that I know and, um, and them to come through it, what, you know, what a blessing. Um, and, and with it, it just, I think my whole thought process has been, Lord, you know, you knew this was coming. Uh, it's no surprise, uh, but we have personally, I and us as a family, we need to make sure that we are doing the right things that the government is saying. Um, so on that level, you know, bit of uh, skepticism at first, but then, a, you know, real reality check. And in regards to the players, um, the focus, you know, on players to do more in terms of early on what Matt Hancock said, I think. Um, you know, footballers will always be an easy target, you know, and, and the thing is, and what I liked about Marcus Rashford's thing this week, he raised, you know, not him personally, but just, you know, facilitated raising of £20 million. I don't think I saw that in the paper once before the, the accusations came about players not doing enough. And, you know, and I could name you know, a hundred players who have got charities, who support charities, who um, who do a lot that goes unheard because they don't want the limelight for it. They just want to get on and do because they want to give something back. So I think it was a, it's a cheap shot. You know, I think yeah. it was a cheap shot uh, in terms of that for the players. And, and, and Gordon Taylor, the PFA uh, chairman, was really good when he, when he said, well, you know, players can take pay cuts, but you know that affects the tax that comes into the government as well and you know and, and that in itself because it the thing for me because it was about money it just you could just there was just a sense of was there a bit of jealousy was there a bit of you know let's throw mud that way because it takes pressure off of what's going on here and so I thought it was a cheap shot but you know players are doing good things and uh, one day you know articles about players doing good things will will be more popular than you know, someone buying a house that can afford to buy a house for their parents and, you know, not get told off for it. So, you know, so I think that there'll be more positive press about what players do. Thanks for the way. Take us, take us um, through the beginning of you and your football career and how you ended up being in the Premier League, winning the FA Cup, you know, how, how did it all begin for you? such a long time ago but it feels like <laughs> it feels like a dream um so when i was 14 um I, i'd only started playing um 11 side football two years before um but started playing for a sunday team 14 got scouted by charlton um was now part of the what they call the academy system 
back then it was Centre of Excellence and uh, YTS schemes and things like that. So I was part of that for two years as a schoolboy. Um, you know, I, I, I always say this, I wasn't the best, but, I, you know, I would always try my best. To, you know, I'd always work hard to to do the right things, uh, quite hard on myself at times as well. But got through the two years as a schoolboy, got taken on as an apprentice with Charlton, had the opportunity to go to West Ham as well, but turned that down uh, because I felt that I needed to be loyal to Charlton. Uh, spent two years as an apprentice, two years as a uh, pro. I was only one of, sorry, two of 40 who, uh, from the age of 14 to, to, to 18, only two, uh, one, sorry, one or two who received a professional contract. So that was quite a big achievement. I made my league debut um, the following year, or no, that same season, I think, and um, man of the match live on TV, amazing start. Played six more games and then uh, got released by by Charlton, which was a devastating blow in terms of uh, when you that first feeling of rejection, um, you know, and, and what do you do next was, was really a, a big moment in my life. Um, but I did get taken on by a club uh, called Barnet, who were two divisions lower or three divisions lower. So it was the bottom of the, the so it's League Two, the, the, the lowest league. But in the years that I was at Barnet, um, you know, I grew up. You know, I grew up, I was playing men's football. Um, I was playing against seasoned pros. I was playing against guys who had great careers but were coming down the ladder, uh, you know, who knew all the tricks. So I had to grow up very quickly. Um, you know, and it was a struggle. You know, I was struggling with lots of different things, self-doubt, um, you know, um, performance, because you, you always judge, you know, so you always uh, knew you had to perform. Um, and and dealing with these things mentally without giving anything away that you're nervous or scared is quite a big uh, act to play. But uh, I got through it. Um, I got a move to Reading, uh, who were in the championship at the time. Uh, it was a bigger move. Moved out of London with my wife and children. Um, and spent three years there. Weren't the three best years uh, in terms of football. Uh, my wife's health wasn't great. So there was a lot of things going on off the pitch. And then physically for me on the pitch, there was taking a toll, I had a few injuries. Um, but I was still able to perform when I could. And uh, got to the end of three years there, was told that I was going to get a new contract and didn't really work out that well. So I left, went to Portsmouth. And that was quite quiet, early start uh, with Tony Pulis. Uh, within three months, I had Steve Claridge as manager. Within another three months, I had... Um, Graham Ricks as manager, and then finally uh, ended up with Harry. And uh, Harry got us promoted to the Premier League in 2003 uh, as part of that squad. And then, um, you know, after that, as Harry likes to do, he likes to sign a player or two. And, uh, you know, so I played alongside some great players, Paul Merson, uh, David James, Sol Campbell, Glenn Johnson. Um, and we ended up staying in the Premier League for seven seasons. Um, in which time we won the FA Cup as well. Unfortunately, I was injured uh, for that, but um, what a day, what a day. And, and since that time, Portsmouth um, have been to Wembley probably another six times. So, you know, they, it's like Wembley's their home ground now. So, uh, so yeah, so that was good, 2008, winning the FA Cup, and then uh, 2010, I retired. Um, but, you know, some good memories, some, you know, on and off the pitch. And, you know, when you... Obviously, during this time of lockdown, there's been 
you know, moments to reflect on so many different things. And I was able to reflect on, uh, on uh, you know, looking back at my career and realizing that, um, you know, what was achieved uh, in those years, getting to the Premier League and staying in and, and, and everything we, we'd done in that time was, was, was really special. But I've, I've never been able to live in the moment of that. So re reflecting back was really special uh, for the club, for me personally. And um, something that, you know, I now know that there's a small percent that are able to do that. And uh, and when you're in it, you don't think of it. But when you're looking in from the outside, you realise it's a difficult place to be. Um, and to stay there was really, uh, you know, really a lot of hard work. But I know that hard work wasn't on my own. You know, I know I had a lot of help. And um, but yeah, so amazing times over those years. Amazing, mate. That's incredible. Um, I'd love to get both of your thoughts um, from both of your selective view of things. Uh, I know, Linvoy, for you, whenever you were at Charton at, the, at those early days, you know, I remember you telling me before you were like, I think you were like two out of maybe 30, 40 young kids who were picked at the end. You know, yeah. all these young kids go in and their parents too go in with these big dreams of my child's going to make it or is it or is the young kid I'm going to make it and then for maybe two out of 40 they only go through yeah. the rejection the pain the the, the thought of dreams ending uh, um, I'll go to Philip first tell me you're you know you be around parents and you know young kids who have dreams and ambitions to make it big one day and, and not just football but in all sports with regards to that well, it's a, it's a very difficult um, because uh, parents' expectations are sometimes, um, and it's, it's, it's not as a parent, I have three boys, and you want your children to do well, and you're excited for them when, they, when you see some talent that they have. So you, you hope that that will grow and to be something they can use in their life going forward. I think one of the things well, that's really important is within the, the sporting context is the people who are actually coaching them and the people who are, are receiving them that they build in a bigger perspective in their life um, and that they clearly, that they care for them. I think one of, there's an old saying that, that, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and within a, a sporting context, and this has to come from the coaches and the people who are there, if young players know that they're cared and they're loved for uh, and, and they're appreciated and they're valued, then you, you, it's much easier to have the conversation at the end of the season to say, look, Spud, it, we, we think that you'll play more football at, at another club. And, and we have spoken to three or four other clubs because we really recommend you. We think you'd be great, but we just don't think you're going to have that time here. So those are the sort of things that clubs need to do well to help people on their journey. As Linvoy knows, as I know, it's a bumpy road anyway. It's not a straight shooting path to the top. Sometimes you have to go somewhere sideways or a step backwards to go three steps forward. And it's important you always leave that young person with a sense of you can still make it to the top but what you're saying purely at your club right, right at that particular point is i don't think but if you do it in love and you do it with care and they know you care about you it's an easier conversation to have i'm sure that's the same across lots of sports sport is a, a is a can be a, a it's a very tough place to try and make it linvoy knows that better than i do but it's a, a it's very challenging and you do need people around you to help you on that journey and and it's not 
I th sometimes people say you can't be soft for players. You have to tell them about the, the. But there's also a time to actually introduce those conversations about the, how tough it is, and it's when they're a little bit older. Um, so not easy. It's a we all love sport. We know how tough it is. Um, but again, communication and people understanding the journey that's ahead for a young player is is critical within a club. What about you, Ian Boy? Yeah, I think. One of my, my passion really is for uh, a holistic development of of young men. You know, like Phil has said, you, you, the expectation of parents is high, um, and when you go into that industry, you you your mental toughness has to be there. But one one of the things that you know. I speak to a number of coaches and one of the things that the pressure that comes on their doorstep is to produce the next best thing, but you can't produce one player um, without being in a team. So they, you know, deep down, they know that a number of these players aren't good enough to go again, but they need a team for the ones or two that can. So there is, there is something there. There is, there has to be a duty of care that, you know that allows those uh, young boys to to develop other areas in their lives as well. Um, whether that's social skills, because of you know if if you're taking your your team away somewhere and you go to a restaurant and they've got your badge on, there's an expectation because the badge you're wearing carries you know carries weight. So if you misbehave or you know bring that badge into uh, a bad light that's not good so these things these the these, you know learning these things are really good skills for if you don't stay in football they're skills that are transferable into to real life because the football bubble is a real you know it, it's make-believe in terms of you can't see it but it's real because when you're in there it's like um it can be like the best day at disney or it could be the, the worst yeah, yeah, yeah. rainy day at Disney, you know, and it can change. Yeah. You know, I, I remember, uh, I won't name the player because he doesn't know I'm going to tell his story, but I remember there was a player that used to come into training and, you know, he had unbelievable um, ability. Uh, you know, he, he could win a game in a moment. But he was so volatile. And I used to think to myself, when he leaves his house, and he comes in and, you know, something might happen. It kicks off, he walk off, um, walk off the training pitch and go home. I, I, I think to myself, I'd be thinking, how could you set out not knowing what sort of, um, how you're going to come home in terms of, you know, the anger or the, the disruption and stuff like that. And, and I, used to, I used to think, oh man, you, you, you know, you've got to take this serious. You've really got to take this serious. So with it all, there's, there's lots of ups and downs. It is bumpy, but I, I call it life. It is life. You know, life happens where, no matter what job you do. Um, but it's how you cope. And, and I think, like you said, Phil, coaches, managers have got a duty of care that for that time that they're under, you know, their, their, their watch, as to say, um, you know, try and make the best young men you can so that when they go elsewhere, somebody will turn around and say, that's such and such player because the way they carry themselves, the way they the, the professionalism and stuff, because they know that whoever's had them before installed 
some good values, some good things that can go into a dressing room and be okay. So, yeah, it's a tough world. It's a tough place. But, you know, if you're in it, uh, don't be surprised. And I think that's what happens. A lot of people get surprised how tough it is when you're in there. And boy, just for me, I, I think everything you shared is absolutely brilliant. It's really insightful, the, the, you know, uh, uh, what you've said. I, I think the, the whole piece of a young player being at a club and, a, and as you say, the role models that are there, the coaches, the people around them, having that bigger perspective that actually they're, they're actually helping them on their journey to being a man. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's what you're really, I mean, as, as a parent, I feel like even taking a parent, you're, you're trying to prepare your, your children to become men or, mm. or women in, in, in the other sense. So um, I, I often hear the word, you know, or the term is sport is a microcosm of life itself. And if that is true, then it has the possibility for both the best things to happen and the worst things to happen, just like you're experiencing, you're expressing about yeah. that as well. And the difficulty is with that, but when you're telling a young player, um, if you tell a young player that he's too young to actually understand what you're telling him, because he, all he's thinking about is, is playing well in the next game, etc. So it's it's finding the right way to introduce that you're you're actually acquiring a lot of life skills, which are going to help you whether you become a professional uh, sports person or not. They're going to help you within the game, and they're going to help you beyond the game. And if you don't make it in the game, they're going to help you as well. And also, it, it parents to understand that because it is a wonderful learning experience being a sports person, and mm -hmm. uh, very unique. But again, it's finding the right sort of time and tools to, to share that with everybody. But no, brilliant what you said, big man. That was, uh, was really insightful for me. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, Lindvoy, tell us about, you know, um, you, know you, sh you shared there briefly about, you know, the, the ups and downs of professional football, going from club to club, moving with your family from here to there. You know, <clears throat> there's obviously, there's a reason why we call the, we're calling these uh, Sunday nights, you know, these recordings that we're doing, audience of one, you know, because there has to come that point where you've experienced it probably more than anyone, you know, where you're, you've are you got the, pre the, the press on your back, the fans, the manager, the coaches, your other teammates, you know, constantly, as as Philip said, that, that micro bubble almost of, you know, pressure, 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 pressure. At what, at what point for you did it get to the point where you realized that you can't please everybody and there had yeah. to be a point where you live for a higher purpose? I think, you know, I probably started that journey when I was 20. Um, the, the, the first time I was told by Charlton that I could leave the club, um, I was probably searching for the, uh, the, the satisfaction of what life will give me going forward. Because you know, I outside of um, outside of football, friends and family um, would call me a footballer because I, that's what I'd done from school through to twenty years old. So what's that? Four years. So I was now a footballer because that's all they, they they'd seen me or heard about me. Um, so as a twenty-year-old, when you're told you're not at that, you're not wanted by that club, all of a sudden your identity is gone. Uh, literally, you know, walking out the manager's office and walking, you know, to your car. It's like, now what? Because unfortunately, the press allows, uh, and, you know, this is called it media, allows this uh, vision of once you, you're, you've become a footballer, uh, 18 years old, you'll earn 120 grand a week. And um, 
you know, you're going to have the, the flashiest cars, the flashiest washes, you're going to have all this stuff. Um, but little do they uh, know, or if they do know, then they don't want to talk about it too much, is that 92 teams, <laughs> uh, obviously 91 now, but 92 teams in the league, only 20 play in the Premier League, and uh, 20 teams in the Premier League, and not every player that's in that Premier League is on, you know, 120 grand a week, you know, and a lot of them are paid well, which is great, and you know, that that's what they, they, they can command, that's great, but not everybody is on that amount of money. And the average uh, career now lasts uh, about eight years, so the reality of that, I was a 20-year-old, I had no right to command another club because I hadn't proved myself enough. Um, and, and, and that was really hard because you, you're looking around for help, but you don't want to show that you're weak. You know, you, 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 inside everything's like, no, you know, it's all over. What am I going to tell people? I was a young dad. I'm going to look after my, my son, you know, um, and, and, and all that. And I hadn't even grown up yet. You know, that was the thing. I was 20 years old. You think you've grown up. I hadn't. So emotionally, I didn't know how to deal with, with that. And, and there was a chaplain, funny enough, there was a chaplain called Steve Bridget Charlton, who I avoided like the plague. Because, you know, but the reason why, because um, faith and sport don't go together. You know, because in that dressing room, Phil, you know, man, some things get spoken about that can, we could never talk about. Spud, you'd know that. You know, there's <laughs> things that are spoken about that, you know, if, if you walked into that dressing room now, it'd be like, wow, that, this is shocking. But when you're in it, you're in it. But you can't, you know, in that, you have to be a macho man and all that sort of stuff. So, so that was hard. Um, and I think by the time I got to 27, 28, with my wife's illness, I asked this question, there must be more to life than this, because the sport that I love was showing me so many bad sides. And, and the way I describe it, it's like the dark side of the moon. You see the nice reflective bit, you know, the night sky and the, the, the moon full and bright. But what's going on on the other side? And that's what football's like, you know, there's a, there's a bright side that looks brilliant. Um, but what's going on the other side? So I asked that question, there must be more to life than this. And then within 18 months, uh, I'm now at Portsmouth, um, been invited to church. And, you know, and I, I heard the message for the first time about, you know, the, the gospel. I heard the message of Jesus. I heard the message of God's great rescue plan. And, and for the first time, life started to make sense. I heard it, but I didn't make a decision to, to do anything about it. But just it, it, like there was some sort of order coming. And um, so I invested that Christian faith a bit more, my wife and myself. And after six weeks, I decided that, you know what, what I could see in people in the congregation and a couple of my teammates who were Christians, I could see peace in their eyes. And, and probably without me knowing, I was chasing peace through sport because it brought a happiness, it brought a challenge, it brought the ups and downs and everything like that. And I was probably looking for peace through that. But in the end, you know, um, it wasn't until I met Jesus and, and accepted what he'd done on the cross for me uh, that I knew real peace. But it, didn't, it wasn't a light switch, it didn't happen overnight. 
that something happened internally because people were looking at me saying, Lynn, you look different. You know, you don't look, you know, there's something different in your face. And I used to joke and say, yeah, it's just a moisturizer, you know, just the oil of you lay. <laughs> and, and, and that's when, you know, that's when it's changed, things changed for me. 28 years old, that's when I, I describe it. That's when my real life started. Amazing. Amazing. And how did that adapt then and connect then with your everyday life then? Play, yeah. Play, um, to be honest, yeah. To be honest, I thought I was going to be a secret Christian because... I thought, I can't tell the lads that I'm going to church because they will hammer me. Um, <clears> but obviously I knew my, my, my teammate, Darren Moore, um, you know, he's a big old boy, six foot four, you know, built like anything. Um, and he was a Christian. And, and the, the nice thing I could do with him, we, when we used to play away games, we used to room together. So I used to ask him questions and because I wasn't convinced that just saying a little prayer um acknowledging what jesus done for me on the cross would allow me to have a relationship you know with with god and i couldn't quite believe that uh, so i'd ask darren questions and he'd open his bible and he'd ask answer the questions and it got a bit heavy and i'd be like oh cheers more that's great you know because i couldn't really tell him that i was bored you know so um but then i thought right i've asked him questions so i'm going to ask the guys in church the same questions and they had the same answers as Darren, and that wound me up. It really wound me up because I thought Darren must be phoning them and telling them what questions to ask, uh, to answer, because what I was going to ask. But obviously, he didn't. He didn't know them. Um, and then, you know, eventually there was a moment where I, my knee was healed. Uh, Darren and the chaplain were praying for me. Knee, knee was healed instantly, and and you know, and I. And I felt the power of God. That's the only way I can describe it. You know, I know now it was the Holy Spirit. And, and what, when I tell you that I've searched for peace everywhere, at that moment, those guys were praying for me. There was peace. It was like the world had stopped and every, all the concerns and everything like that had gone, washed away. And, and I, could, I can describe it as love, but love, you know, can look different and feel different. But what was happening at that moment was the God showing me that the peace that I'd been looking for could only be found in, in him. Um, and, and, and after that, I, I ran with it, man. I just ran with it. And what, and what I mean by that, I took ownership of my Christian faith uh, through difficult times, being told that I could leave the club at, at Portsmouth, uh, drop from the team, um, Players give me a lot of stick, but the good thing I had around me were, were um, my church family because they became our friends. Never had real friends. When I say real friends, it, it, it sounds going to sound harsh, but the friends in London were our real friends because they accepted us as we were without anything else. The friends we were starting to meet after we moved outside of London wanted to know the footballer and then everything else that came with them. So we were really guarded. But with the church family, it was, they, don't, they didn't care that I played football. They were more concerned that Trish and the kids uh, were well and then me, um, which was lovely. And then through that, um, dealing with the stick for the players, that, you know, the chaplain was brilliant. It was a former player, understood the culture of the dressing room, 
would give me gold dust, you know, give me gold dust, give me verses from the Bible about certain things. And, and you've got to realise, as a young Christian, I'm a bit sceptical, you know. Mm. When Harry said I could leave the club, he gave the, the chaplain gave me a verse uh, from Colossians, you know, do uh, whatever you do, do it, you know, do it for God. And I thought, what's that mean? That's a load of, you know, in my head, I thought, that's, that ain't going to work. And he said, Lynn, just play for an audience of one. Don't worry about God. Don't worry. Uh, sorry, don't worry about God. Don't worry about Harry. Don't worry about the fans. Don't worry about your teammates. Just play for the one that gave you the gift. And by doing that, Harry said I could stay at the club after a couple of weeks. Um, then I'm not in the team. Then I get in the team, stay in the team. And what was evident for everybody else around was... I spoke loads about my Christian faith and it normally fell on deaf ears. But what they couldn't argue with was the transformation on the pitch because they saw performance, consistent performances and things like that. But what I was able to do through those performances, I knew I'd be interviewed. So because I, I, I could say exactly what's happening, I would say to the journalists, I play for God. So they start mm -hmm. to write, Limboy says Harry Redknapp's God. And I'm like, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, I'm a born-again Christian and I play, with, <laughs> I play with real peace because my father in heaven loves me whether I win the game, lose the game or draw the game. I'd never experienced that in my entire life where I wasn't judged on my performance. So to have a father in heaven that loved me anyway, of course you're going to go on that pitch and play with a freedom. You know, playing against some great teams, United, Liverpool, um, I can't even think about them too at the moment, but playing against some great teams and, and realistically should be so fearful of what could be coming the other way. But, um, you know, I just said, Lord, this game's for you, this performance is for you. If kicking it in row Z means it's a good decision that I've made, but it doesn't please everybody, I don't care because God, you love me. <laughs> um, and, that, and that's when, the, you know, that change uh, from 28 uh, through to, you know, 35 years old allowed me to play the best football I'd ever played. And believe me, guys, all I used to do is head the ball and kick it. That was it. <laughs> and run quite quick. But, you know, but sometimes that's what's needed. You know, you can have all the, the flair and everything like that. But sometimes it's just, uh, you know what, let's just do the basics, do the basics well. And that's, you know, and that. You know, God's grace allowed me to to have uh, some years in the Premier League. I mean, that's incredible. And I know, <clears throat> I know, I know you long enough to know that you're even quite shy about speaking about some of the things that um, the accolades that you received, even whenever you stop playing. You know, but I am going to ask you because I do think that's a testament of the attitude that you had throughout your whole career, and it's a bit of God's blessing on you too. Saying, you know what, Lynn well done boy, you know, yeah. you're my boy kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us about some of those from Portsmouth and also the chance to, to get a, uh, an invitation to the, to the palace. <laughs> yeah, you know what, it's funny, when, you, when you're playing and you're, you know, you're given Man of the Match awards or Player of the Year awards, you know, they do mean a lot, but you, you, you don't rest on that. It's a strange thing, Phil, you, you, you'll know this, you, that, that saying you're only as good as your last game or you know and, and, and the tiny bits people will pick at even if you've had a man in a match they say oh what about when you've done that you know so there'll be always a negative and 
and I think for personally I used to really highlight my errors and focus on my errors and rather than enjoy the moment of being mad at a match or, or anything like that but you know I was it was a blessing because in that promotion season from being told that I'm not wanted at the club to then uh, being told I'm wanted I'm going to be on the bench and then in the first game player gets injured then I'm in the team from the start of the season right the way through to the end I think I missed a couple of games through sickness um, and then winning player of the year but not just from our fans but fans around the country uh, and it was accolade upon accolade accolade upon accolade and but I was able, it was great because it was such an easy platform to just say, you know what, um, you, you might think that I was good, but, you know, what's better is this, you know, and I'd be able to, to, you know, just speak normally about being a Christian and how it works in the dressing room. Um, and then, you know, going on a few more years um, past retirement, um, yeah, I got awarded the MBA, and whatever I'd done uh, in my years at Pompey off the pitch was always to help other people. You know, my thought process, let, you know, try and encourage other people, try and let them see that, you know, Christianity, the church, the people, the, you know, the church building uh, and the, the congregation, that they're normal people. So I always saw myself as a, an opportunity an opportunity for Christians to, to engage with their community um, in an easy way without it being, oh, people in that church, in that church, but they've got two heads and, you know, they, they go and sing and everything like that. But when they saw that as, you know, myself and other people were just normal, but we, you know, we've got love and we've got hope in Jesus Christ, um, people were, were, were drawn to that. So to receive that MBE, was a shock was you know totally unexpected and interestingly enough the guy that nominated me he had to get lots of letters from lots of different people um you know he said you deserve it and and i said well actually i don't feel that i do he said you do you don't realize how many lives you've impacted and i and i made this promise when i was 15 years old i made a promise um I said and it's probably a prayer without me really knowing who God was I said that if I ever made it I'd come back to London and, and give something back to where I grew up the disadvantaged kids but I never ever made it back to London all that work took place in, in Portsmouth and um, yeah and it's quite amazing and, and I use that MBE uh, I, I don't do it as much now because I don't really go into schools as much because of time and stuff but I use the MBE uh, as a, to show the young people that where I grew up, um, <clears throat> the, the environment screamed that you will fail. It screamed, you will fail. Um, but I said to them, look, I, I'm little Limboy from Stratford, East London, lived in the 17th floor of a block of flats. The world told me I was going to fail. But look, if I can do it, you can do it, you know, and um, and that's what I use it for. So you reminded me that I've got an MBE. I, I forget. I honestly forget. Uh, but I do. When the opportunity comes to, to share about it, I, I, I talk about 
this is something that is achievable for a number of people in a number of different ways and um yeah, and bless god you know it's, it's it's down to him it's down to him totally down to him yeah absolutely and uh, philip tell us a wee bit more about what sports chaplaincy does because i know it's a it's a thing close to my heart and it's a thing close to Limboy's heart obviously it played a key role and his career and the support network with being part of a, you know, I've been there where you're part of a group of guys that meet regularly in a club and get into the word and pray with each other and hold each other to account in our faith and encourage each other to go deeper in God and the adventures of that. Hey, tell us a wee bit more about it. And also hey, if someone's on tonight and they're listening and think I, they maybe used to be involved in sport at some place that maybe love to get involved, how they can get involved in that. Sure. I mean, first to say, Linvoy, what a what a tremendous story and what a tremendous witness you you have been and uh, to everybody and you know God's really used you uh, wonderfully in uh, in football and, and and as you rightly say, yours a yours a great story, but it's a real story. It's a story of uh, of the ups and downs of, yeah. of the footballer. Um, so so well done. This was wonderful. Uh, listen to you. Sport, um, sports Chelsea is. Um, I mean, uh, an organisation has been around for quite a while. We're predominantly involved in football, but also involved in increasingly more sports. So rugby, hockey, cycling. Uh, um, we're involved a lot with gymnasiums now as well. Cricket, um, uh, golf, a whole bunch of other sports uh, now becoming more and more um, uh, part of the sports chaplaincy family. So a, a chaplain, just to sort of frame uh, a chaplain, because sometimes there's some misunderstanding around, around all of that. A chaplain is there... Um, to really just uh, journey and do life with people at a football club. They're there to have a presence. They're, they're there as a safe port of call. They have no, uh, um, they're not on committees. They're not on um, uh, boards. They're not, uh, nothing to do with selection of teams. They, they are there to care for everybody at the club. And, and that's a good thing to have. I think what you got to remember in the sporting context, they, there's a statistic out there that says that 41% of employees would tell their employers if they had any difficulties in life. If you put that in the sporting context, in the a dressing room that Lynn Boys already alluded to, where you're expected to be mentally tough, resilient, not weak of mind, strong, it's not a place where you, you typically are going to go and talk to your teammates or your coach or your manager or trainer or backroom staff about some of the difficulties you're encountering. Those may be related to sport, but very often they're not. George Best was actually quoted very recently in an interview he did in the mid-80s with Gerald Williams, and he said that very thing. He said, players, he said, have no one to turn to. He said, he said you really need somebody just outside of that whole normal club setting. Uh, and uh, the football football side of things where you can actually have someone to talk to. So the truth is that for most sports people, we always say they're just normal people. You know, they're, they're, they, they are normal people, they've got normal feelings, but they are in a slightly unnormal or, or unusual environment where performance is key. They're expected to stay fit, train, get three points on a Saturday and repeat. And, and if that doesn't happen, the kind of the world can start to feel crumbling down around them. And it can affect all of the other things around their life. There may be other things in their lives that are affecting their football performance. So the need for a chaplain, a chaplain is, is, has become a, one that's, that's very much increasing. And a chaplain is a safe protocol. The chaplains will all be people with particular skill sets. Um, will be people who will understand about the big, good, non-judgmental listening ears. And sometimes that's really just enough for some people, someone just to listen to. Um, 
there'll be also people who will have wisdom, be able to provide advice, but all manner of things. They'll be also be able to signpost if you've got, if there's issues around addiction or, or that type of thing, if you've got issues with family, if we have other organizations with specific specialist skills that we can signpost to. But the chaplain is increasingly an important part. And I think the chaplain is now becoming more aware of the psychology of sport and what is going on. And I think it's a wise thing for the sports scientists and the coaches of clubs to realize that the chaplain may have a very, very small part to play, but it might be the little missing piece in the jigsaw for some player to, to get to the performance level because typically coaches and managers are saying, I need you to perform well. But the chaplain, I mean, I'll I mean, I, I give you an example. I mean, if, if a, there, was a, there was a player at a club recently where the, the, um, uh, the family, had a, had a, they lost a child at late in, in the pregnancy. And the manager and the coach and the, and the background staff, they, they need the player fit and on the pitch. He's a key player in the team. He's an he's a X amount of million pound asset. So who do they turn to? They turn to the chaplain because the chaplain is able to empathise through the whole situation, talking through, and he, he's not, you know, he's not concerned about getting them on the pitch. He's concerned about loving and caring for them through that. But out of that, the player realises that's actually the club who are caring for them because the chaplain's part of the club, and he feels mm -hmm. that, and the family feels that. So it's, it's important. Um, there's so many things that the chaplains can do within a club. I, I, I would say to anybody who is is thinking of of um, anybody who's a follower out there of Jesus and who, and who loves Jesus and who wants to get involved in, um, in their community. And I want to say this, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to love sport or be nuts about sport. You have to be nuts about Jesus and nuts about people. You know, that's, that's what you need to, those are the skills you need to have. Um, be a good listener. We can provide all the training for you. The setting at every club is a little bit different. So the expectations of how often you're there or when you're there will be determined somewhat between you and the club. But we have a lot of um, opportunities for people right now to get involved. We've got 27 of the top 35 clubs in Northern Ireland, all of champions in football. We've just had five rugby clubs this year who have all um, um, appointed champions of clubs. The Northwest Cricket Union have just endorsed this um, and we've appointed four champions in, in their league up there. And we're increasingly now, there's more chaplains um, coming in on the female side of the game, disability side of the game, amateur side of the game. So we, we want to be able to serve everybody, and not just in Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland as well. That's somewhere we, we de definitely want to go. Um, and, and obviously, hopefully, as I get more time to do that, we can go there. So we're really excited about it. Um, it's, it's, it's an opportunity as well. Um, for chaplains to, to just engage. It's an opportunity for, by the way, I should say that chaplains are not always ordained ministers. That's also a, a perception. Mm -hmm. Ordained ministers come with particular skill sets. They're trained to care for the pastoral needs of, of, of people uh, in their community and their spiritual needs. But typically, you know, we also have a lot of chaplains now who are, who are just guys who do other things. We've got some of them are joiners, some of them are electricians, some of them work in, in um, other professional work. Those guys are also critically important too. So as chaplains, so they provide a, another range of skills. Some of those guys actually are coming from a sporting background themselves. Maybe some of them organically actually were in the club in another role, former players, uh, former administrators in the club, and also all of a sudden realize, I, I still have a role to play here. And it's a role about caring for people and loving people. That's what it is. We're there to love people. And, and, and in a world of... You know, I think some of the things that Lynn Voigt highlighted there is, is your identity. 
there's a you know that that's that's an issue because you become identified as you can say I, I was a gymnast from six years old I've been a gymnast all my life if I'm not a gymnast who am I that's a question people ask they say and we have to remember we need to prepare people chaplains can build in perspective so that they realize there's a bigger identity who they are they're they're, they're someone who loves playing football they're not identified solely as a footballer so identity is an issue within sport and our chaplains can help with that the second thing is there's an enormous amount of uncertainty around sport no matter how well you're going and the third one is injury most players whose careers were finished early or who had long layoffs with injury will say they they never thought that was coming they thought they were invincible and it's just the smallest thing can happen that actually so there's so many things that are around identity uncertainty and injury that that again chaplains are in a position to uh, provide perspective in those situations and and to be a good listening ear and and to sometimes provide really good practical advice and wisdom sometimes to work in and signpost with other organizations and also work in with the with the, the rehab staff at a club as well when there's an injury because again a lot of it is here there's there's the, the, in terms of the healing of the injury too so we're we're really excited anybody out there who's interested uh, just uh, connect with me my, my email is ireland at sports.org just drop me an email we've got some training coming up online we've got a new season coming up and we'd love to um have you come and join us amazing amazing i've got one final question for lenvoy and then i've got one question for both of you just as, as we finish uh lenvoy tell us your maybe even some of your own experiences and your own thoughts around everything that's happening in our world at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement. Such a, you know, it's so sad that it took something so horrific yeah. to bring this properly yeah. into the spotlight. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you'd think, I think, obviously the images of uh, George mm. Floyd uh, going around the world uh, shocked people because I think you know there was in my head I saw the the amazing side of humanity through the uh, through the coronavirus and then they then there started to be a little change where there was a bit of finger pointing you know politically there's a bit of finger pointing accusations and you know lies you know that were obvious and and things like that and you just saw bit glimpses of mankind and I think with you know the the Black Lives Matter um, the protests and everything like that uh, this has been you know four or five hundred years of of uh, of build-up but I think for the first time you saw unity uh, in regards to human beings you know it, it's not skin color it's not you know, size, it's not hair or anything like that. It's, you know, what, how can humanity, how can one human being do that to another human being? Um, so I think in some way, you know, it, it, it's sad that it's happened. The reaction, some of the reactions have been, you know, not the best, but on the majority, it, it's been peaceful, but it's made a, you know, a, a huge, huge impact. And to see football, what we've seen over the last couple of uh, games um, where people, uh, footballers and everybody involved taking a knee and obviously showing appreciation to the NHS as well. I think this it, it, it's come a point now where actually this can't be ignored. So 
for me, you know, watching it, there were some uncomfortable moments. You know, even even my thinking and the things that I, I, I've learned and heard over the over the weeks, even I was uncomfortable because, you know, my parents shielded me from anything like that. Uh, there there'd be odd things said that. You, you sort of just say, oh, you know what, they're ignorant. You just wave them off and don't let it affect you. Don't show that it affects you. That same sort of thing, Phil, where you don't show no weakness in the dressing room. You know, when someone taunts you, you don't, you don't let them get in. You don't let them affect you. So there were, there were little bits like that. But, you know, even for me, it was uncomfortable watching and hearing some of the stories of what people have gone through. You know, with, there's a time for change. And lots of people have said that you know coming into lockdown they were a certain way coming out of lockdown they'll be a certain they'll be different from how they went in um and i i think with black lives matters that okay it's uh you know it, it it is about black lives at this moment but forget that wider than that there's you know there's where there's injustice that's the bottom line where there's injustice i think more people are saying right that's enough that's enough no more injustice and this crosses many many things now so um it's a shame but it, there was going to come a point where there's going to be an overspill and, and this is it now it's time for the people who can make decisions who are in the, those seats to make some decisions that show before we start pointing fingers elsewhere what we're doing on our own backyard you know so hopefully i know some guys who, who are that sort of level who some big big conversations really big conversations over the last few weeks and um you know and we'll we'll see we'll see it but i think there, there was always going to be an overspill at some time um yeah. and you know hopefully there'll be you know something positive going forward um, i'm sure there will i'm sure this what's happened people won't allow anything like that to happen and not people won't be punished for it we don't want any justice that's the bottom yeah. line here here man absolutely with you 100 um final question for both of you and thank you both for being with us tonight you know no i know we're we're recording this beforehand because uh it's a very special day of the year it's father's day um when this sure goes out is. um and we're, we're all we're all fathers here and you know i think even just listening to you both uh, just over this last hour, you know, sharing your stories and your heart. There's a, from my perspective, what we're trying to do here at CVM Ireland is consistently reach men. That's men who are watching this who don't yet have a faith. We want to help you understand that and like Linvoy, work through that of what that really means that we can get you to the point where you want to give your life to Jesus. And it's also taking Christian guys to help them fully walk in their true identity as sons of, of God and um and what everything that that means but there's such a big thing going on i think in the world too that not very many people like to talk about and it is a fatherlessness epidemic and i know sport plays as we've you've already highlighted this and what we've talked about already sport plays a key role in mentoring and fathering young kids young boys young girls who don't have that father's voice because we all know what it's like to look up to your hero coach or the hero player and for that moment of them to turn around and go, do you know what, kid, well done. And your, your whole world just lights up because a, 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 a mentor, a father figure in your life believes in you 
And as fathers yourselves, what would you like to share just as we kind of close this out before uh, we head into our further Zoom call with the rest of the guys? I'll, I'll go first. I'll let Wade uh, wrap it up. I mean, I think, I mean, it's, a, it's something very close to my heart, the whole thing of being a father's but um, uh, I lost my dad at 18 um, and, and I had a, a world-class father. And I'm grateful for the 18 years I had him. Uh, younger brother Keith only had him for 13 years, and, and Colin was a couple of years older than me. It was a it was a massive void when when we lost my dad. Um, and I think on my journey um, after that, you became a bit thick-skinned and tougher because he wasn't around, and you missed him. Um, and he became a bit battle-hardened. And it was only honestly in the last maybe six years or so that I have really recognized that I have a heavenly father. I, I, obviously, I haven't been a Christian from a young age. You talk to God, you, you, you talk about your heavenly father, you talk about Jesus, you talk about the Holy Spirit. But that recognition that actually, as Max Lucado says in his book, that we're God's kids first. So whether your experience has been like mine, very good and yet robbed, whether you still have your father around for many years, whether you've had a very bad experience of a father or had no father at all, the one thing I would say to everybody, we're all God's kids first. And, you know, getting back to that piece about identity and, and even what Lynn Boy was saying there about, about the current system, uh, racism issues, we're all made in the image of God, all of us, and we're all loved by God. And that is something to hold dear in your heart that actually, and for a lot of people actually, the, the not having a father or not having a good experience of a father has has had implications on their lives. There's no question about that. But what I would like to say is that you have a heavenly father who loves you beyond anything you can ever imagine. There is nothing um, that will uh, transform your life more like a friendship with God um, because he helps you to settle with the past, engage with the present, embrace the future he deals with your why you're here and he deals with your destiny everything and um again nothing brings that peace the value to your life um that you are valuable that you are important that you do matter uh, like that friendship with god so um that's what i'd like to say that's lovely man that is uh I echo that. I'm not saying no more. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. I think, you know, as you were saying that, uh, Phil, it, it, in, you know, I think to my, my dad's still with me and, and, I, and, and I think of my relationship with him growing up and I don't really remember my, my, my younger years, but what I do know is that he, there, there was always, Know, food on the table there was always you know good clothes and all the practical things you know I never had, had to think about because you know the provision was there and it's not until obviously being a young dad I've got three children now um, and you know I've always thought in my head I just want to try and be the best dad I can be and sometimes you know I want to love them you know, and, and just love them and squeeze them. And, and they don't want that anymore. You know, they don't want squeezing. You know, the youngest is 17 and he's, he's like, Dad, don't do that. I don't want that. Um, um, but I also know that love comes with a bit of discipline as well. Um, you know, and, 
you know, saying no is a, to some things a, a, is something that they don't really like, but they've got to understand it's all through love. Um, and like you, Phil, I think my relationship with Jesus in my Christian years uh, has been um, has been really good. My my relationship with the Holy Spirit has been great. But in the last year, I wasn't too well last uh, last May for a period of time. But I, I, I now know God's love in such a different way. I, I, I know him in his sustaining me, uh, his provision for my family. Um, and, and even though, you know, I, I, I never quite understood it before, but just coming through, you know, this period of lockdown, God's sovereignty, you know, nothing surprised it surprised him, you know, but what I've seen, this isn't related to Father, but what I've seen is this is the most creative the world has been for, you know, at one time, um, because God is a creative God and that's his gift, that's his skill, that's his, you know, and we've got that. So my, my thought process of, of father is i've seen provision from my dad and i've seen it from my heavenly father but you know loving loving my children the best i can um is a tiny tiny reflection of god our father um but it's a gift that he's given and you know i just try to use it well so and i always say this whoever comes into my life um in terms of the role i have with christians in sport uh, my role in life generally, whoever comes into my life, you know what, I'm going to love them like they're my children. Um, because whatever, whatever time I have with those people in my life, I want them to taste, I want them to smell who Jesus is. I want them to taste who God the Father is. And if it's only little bits that allow that for someone else to pick up going forward, then that's great. But, you know, um, our Father in heaven loves us, and you know we have to love our children. Incredible, amen. Thanks, guys. Um, guys, come thank uh, Linvoy and Phil. Come thank you guys enough for giving of your time so freely. I wish we had another hour. We keep talking all day. <laughs> well, well, well done for pulling it together, mate. You know, yeah, I've known you for a long time, man, and uh, I'm always excited when you when my phone rings and I see your name. Now. I'm always excited because I know he's on something. <laughs> He's onto something. So well done for your obedience and your perseverance, man. Because um, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a good thing you're doing, Phil. Mate, you know I hear so much about what you're up to, man. I'm like, oh my days! If I get in that slipstream, I can pick some little bits <laughs> up. But mate, you keep pioneering, man. You keep doing what you're doing because uh, the, the the ripple effect is 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 huge. It is absolutely huge. So you guys. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Well, Envoy, thanks for thanks for all your words of encouragement. I think I say on behalf of Spud now. I mean, I know that you you guys in England who've played at the professional level, who have the stories that you have, you, you have an enormous ripple effect back in our little country, mm. and we love listening to all that you're you, you're doing, and I really encourage you in in your journey. You're a top top guy, so thank you thank so you. much. Cheers, Phil. Thank absolutely. you. Man. Yeah, here, here. I'd say the same. These are both incredible guys, and. Um, Linvoy, I can't wait to get you back in the Emerald Isle one day soon. Yeah, this is I'm getting, I'm uh, getting withdrawal symptoms. 
Uh, listen, guys, if you're watching this uh, and, you have, and you'd love to find out some more, chat some more with some guys about Faith, about Limboy's story, about Phil, uh, Phil's story as well, we're going to be on a Zoom call here immediately after. You'll see it on the links below on Facebook and stuff. Uh, but from us, we're going to sign off. And we're back again next week with another special guest, which we'll let you know about later in the week. So make sure you don't miss it. It's all about an audience of one, and his name is Jesus. So in his name, we bless you, and we say we'll see you soon.